Hey guys, welcome to episode 103 of A True Crime Couple. I'm Kay. And I'm John. We hope everyone is doing really well. And I am just in this perpetual amazing good mood because it is one of the most magical times of the year for me. The last month of school. I know you're really excited about that. Mm -hmm. I can smell my summer vacation. It is right there on the horizon and I'm running towards it. (laughs) Well, it's it's definitely going to be like... I feel like this year especially is just going to be like bigger than the others just because, I mean, this was a hard year. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you and definitely now we deserve have the this. House. Yeah, and we have the house. Well, we can't, we definitely can't afford a pool this year, but my hopes for next year are high. But I bought on Amazon an adult like personal floaty pool. I mean, well, it's supposed to be a floaty <laughs> pool, but like I'm just putting it on my deck. I told I told myself I would not laugh at you on the podcast. <laughs> well, I love it. It's so amazing. It has a pillow and a drink holder and you're not allowed to use it because you laugh at me for it. <laughs> <laughs> so you will never be in my pink inflatable mini adult pool. I mean, it's pretty cool. <laughs> it's pretty cool. I will admit. I have it in a position where the neighbors can't see, so they don't know I'm that weird. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. She does. And I, I came out the other day and I was like, what are you doing? And she's like, I'm hiding. I'm hiding. I'm like, all right, well, I'm sorry you have to hide. She goes, well, I don't want anyone to see my pink pool. I'm just <laughs> like, all right. Hey, if it works, it works, right? I need That's going to be my summer spot. So I'm excited. Yeah. It just, you know, gets you like in, in good spirits to get your own pool, like, yeah. An actual bull. Mm-hmm. It's all right. Guy. Yeah. A girl can dream. A girl can dream. <laughs> so before we get started, we just wanted to remind you that if you haven't already subscribed or left a review for the podcast, please do so on whatever podcast platform you're listening from. We also have a Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash true crime couple. And if you donate $5 or above, you get two bonus episodes a month. And by the end of this month, we're already going to have released 49 episodes, which is a nice little catalog that you could work your way through over the summer while you're in your own personal pink inflatable pool if you have one. Yeah, with the cup holder. Yeah. Don't forget um, the cup holder. <laughs> we also on Patreon, if you donate at every any level, $1 and up, you get ad-free episodes. So that's always a bonus too. And if you are uh, somebody who just recently donated to our Patreon page, then Please stay tuned at the end of the episode because whenever new patrons join our Patreon page, we always thank them at the end of the episode. So we have that for you. And if you're interested in any merch, like we have our logo shirts and shirts that say here for the medical examiner's report or mugs, um, you can visit the link that we have in our show notes. And uh, that's it for the shameless plugs that I have. (laughs) I think that's it. (laughs) Okay, so this is a crazy case. And I just want to warn you at the top of the show that this case does involve abuse to children. And we do talk about um, physical and sexual abuse that children sustain. So um, just, you know, a little trigger warning at the beginning of the episode. If that's something that's not for you, then I'm sorry. But I do always like telling the audience in the beginning. So we can mentally prepare ourselves for this difficult case that we're going to cover. Okay, you ready? I'm ready. Let's do it. In 1991, a beautiful nine-year-old girl went missing from the North Park neighborhood of San Diego. This case, in its twists and turns, brings light to the high crime rates San Diego suffered from in the early 1990s. 
and a bizarre string of missing children's cases, some of which have still not been solved. But this case, the one of Amanda Gakey, does get solved. And it's worse than you could ever imagine. Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. The North Park area of San Diego in sunny Southern California is marked by its quiet suburban streets that lay adjacent to Switzer Canyon. It is known for its striking turn-of-the-century craftsman-style architecture and its beautiful views. It sounds like the ideal place to live, but not in the early 1990s. San Diego in 1991 was one of the most dangerous places to live, not just in California, but in the entire southwestern United States. According to the FBI's criminal index, violent crimes were committed at double the national average and property crimes at three times the national average. This could be attributed to a surge in gang presence and violence and the fact that San Diego is home to five universities within its city limits. The juxtaposition of suburban life and a seedy criminal underbelly was hard for many residents to see. Many wanted to believe that their neighborhoods were still safe, so they went on with business as usual, leaving their cars and homes unlocked and not warning their children about the dangers of talking to those who they didn't know. Unfortunately, North Park would be the location of another one of those San Diego statistics on October 3rd, 1991. That Thursday morning started as all weekday mornings had in the home of nine-year-old Amanda Gakey. Her mother, Marlene, had woken up before both of her daughters had and began to get ready for work. She realized that Amanda, her youngest, had slept on the couch that night. So she took a moment to stare at her daughter, as mothers often do when their children are sleeping. She remembered thinking that she couldn't believe how fast the years were flying by and how beautiful her daughter had become. Once she was ready, she woke up her two daughters and made breakfast. They dressed for school, and Marlene remembered that Mandy, as the family affectionately called Amanda, had been upset because she couldn't get her hair just right. She remembered her daughter looking beautiful that day. The three of them left at the same time. Marlene pulled her car out of the garage and said goodbye to her daughters, kissing them both before they headed off in the opposite directions themselves. Shauna, who was 14 years old, was walking towards the middle school, and Amanda was headed off to McKinley Elementary School on her new purple and pink Huffy bicycle that she had just received for her birthday in July. Marlene remembered looking in her rearview mirror as she drove off to work several times. She watched Amanda on her bike until she could no longer see her, and then went about her day until about 4 p.m., Usually Marlene left work at 3 p.m., but she had worked an hour overtime that day. Later on, at 6 p.m., she had an open house to attend with Amanda at her school, so she did feel a little panicked about getting ready and having dinner with her and Shauna before they left for the event. She had needed to stop at a grocery store before she went home, so that made her schedule even tighter. But she was excited to see the new school that Amanda was attending, 
as she had just been promoted to a new school, seeing that she was now a fourth grader. By the time Marlene had gotten home, it was 5 p.m., only an hour before the open house. She had bought chicken nuggets for the kids and popped them in the oven. Dinner was ready about half an hour later, and as Shauna ate, Marlene went outside to look to see if she could see Amanda anywhere. That is when she ran into one of her neighbors, who gave her a sweater for one of her daughters and a bicycle pump that they no longer needed. When she got back inside, the phone rang, and she thought that it would be Amanda. At this point, it was around 4.45 p.m. Amanda was never late coming home, and if she ever was, she would always call and let her mother know what was happening. She also knew that day she was supposed to be home no later than 5 p.m., and that it was just really out of Amanda's character to not be back at the, the family's apartment. But it was not Amanda who was on the phone. It was Amanda's friend, Jessica. She asked Marlene if she could talk to Amanda, and Marlene was pretty confused. Jessica was her best friend, and usually if Amanda was out, Jessica was the person that she was with. She had just assumed that the girls were together. But Jessica had recently broken her arm, which prevented her from riding her bike, something that Amanda had loved to do. So the two of them were not hanging out that night. Marlene told Jessica that Amanda was not home, but if she saw her, that she should tell her to call or come home right away. She was beginning to get nervous now. Amanda had been looking forward to going to the open house. She ate dinner herself and cleaned up. 6 p.m. came and went as Marlene and Shauna nervously waited for Amanda to come home or call. But she did not. At 6.45 p.m., Marlene told her daughter that if Amanda was not home by 7 p.m., then she would go out looking for her herself. They knew that Amanda was out with her bike. That day was a half day at school because the teachers needed time to prepare for the open house. Amanda had come home and changed her clothes into the outfit that she wanted to wear for the open house. They know that because the school clothes that she had left with that morning were actually in the hamper. They knew that she was out with her bike too because the Huffy was missing from the spot that it usually sat in beside the house. So where did she go? I think this is that awkward time in a missing person's case when it comes to children where the parents just don't know, like, did my child like, just forget the time or is there something more sinister happening here? Yeah, I mean, I think that would, I mean, that puts any parent uh, like, you know, their worst nightmare uh, comes into play. Like, it's also the time, like, this is a time where there's no, um, like no cell phone usage that the kids have, you know, no ring doorbells, let's say nothing that would be like, okay, um, my kid came home at this time and left at this time. Like things are so different, such a different world. No, it's very true. So, you know, to have that happen and not know what's going on must be the most terrifying thing ever. Right. And then I think this is when you start to question yourself of, okay, am I overreacting here or should I call the police? And that's, that's a hard situation to be in. Right. Not to mention, you know, the, the police departments have like some, not rules, but like, you know, if the kid go, the oh, kid yeah. has to be missing uh, for a certain period of time. And then it's like, do you want to be that parent that overreacts and pulls the trigger too soon? And then the police, let's just say they do 
try to step in early and then there's no result. It's like it's a hard place to be like like you're saying, what do you do? Right. And and that's kind of what Marlene thought. But and I think that's why she told her daughter Shauna, like, okay, we'll give it to seven PM, then we'll start looking around. And when seven PM came, Marlene asked her older daughter to show her where all of Amanda's friends lived. So the two women walked to the different houses where Amanda's friends lived. They were all like in this same area of North Park, so everything was really within walking distance. One of her friends, a girl that was the same age as her, told Marlene and Shauna that the last time she had seen Amanda was at noon. That was when they were released from school. There was an after-school program set up where a supervisor would watch the kids play ball and on the playground after school until like around 5 p.m. Originally, that's where Amanda was supposed to have been, and that's why she had to come home at 5 p.m. And she had originally been with this girl. But the girl told Marlene and Shauna that Amanda had gotten into trouble for some reason or another, like not sharing or playing too rough. And she was actually told to leave the program, which is why she went home, changed her clothes and went out on her bicycle. I would be livid. Um, I would be yeah. livid because if this place is supposed to watch a child and, and kind of have like the average after school activities, the kid does something wrong and you kick them out of the program and tell them to go home. Now, I'd have a problem with that. Imagine if you're at work and you have no way of now getting to your child. Yeah. Like, that poses so many, like, risks, like, for their well-being and then just in general. Like, it's it's a, it's a, it's just dumb. <laughs> yes, I completely agree with you. And I think this is a call back to just another era. Like, in 1991, that was something that happened where... <clears throat> Um, protocols weren't really in place like they are today because of cases like this. Uh, Amanda Gakey was sent home from this after-school program and there was no attempt to contact Marlene. Now, it's never been clarified what exactly happened as to why Amanda had to leave, but there is also no formal program that McKinley Elementary School had for these children. It was kind of like there was someone there to supervise a coach of some sort, and that was it that oversaw it. It wasn't like a you sign up for this program kind of deal. Do you know what I mean? Okay. It was a little, it was more informal than that. So it it becomes complicated. Okay. So pretty much it was just on the grounds of the school. Correct. Kind of. But okay, there was, was someone there making sure it wasn't a third party because it was a teacher at the school who was also a, like a little league coach um, or a coach from the district could also hold the position of like after school care. But this wasn't necessarily like a program that parents signed up to send their kids to. It was if people are choosing to play on the school grounds, there was a lot of injuries that were taking place and um, bullying like incidents. So they just kind of had someone stationed there to kind of monitor, not keep track of the kids. Okay, I understand. And she, and how far was she from this? Uh, like, where, how far did she live from the school? Three blocks. Okay. So it's kind of like, you know, like, even for me, like, when I, when I lived in the city and I went to, you know, public school, 
I had to get a permission slip and have it signed for me to walk home. But like even that, you know, even back then and even then, like when I was a kid, that's still like kind of nerve wracking. Oh my god! I was like maybe like four blocks from my house, and I was allowed to walk home. So I was I was also in fourth grade in two thousand and one. Uh, so I mean, I walked home by myself, but I mean, you have to do what you have to do. But imagine what I'm trying to get at here is the kid, this kid now is out of that area, out of the school now Mm -hmm. has to walk home three blocks. Anything could happen in three blocks. Yeah. It's, it's scary. It's absolutely terrifying. And I, you know, that bring, you bring up a really good point. Maybe there was something signed along the lines of like, if your child is going to come here, but if for any reason they're asked to leave, then you know, they're at the mercy. I mean, they're also going home at 5 p.m. too. Right. So, interesting. Very. Yeah. But I think, again, 1991 was a totally different world. And even in many ways, so was 2001. Right. Wow. It, you know, even 2001, like not looking at it now, that even seems primitive. Yeah. So it's when we always do these cases. Well, there were still no cell phones. Exactly. I always just look that when we do cases like this, technology and the time period plays a very big role oh, yeah. in like how we have to look at things and view things because the mentality is so different. If we talk about a case from 1970 in comparison to 2021, there's such a difference. Yeah. It's hard to get into the mindset of how, what things were like. I also think there's a lot more innocence in the older cases that we cover where um, – there wasn't as much of an understanding of the criminal psychology of things and what dangers children really face out in the real world and why people do the things they do and that they do commit these crimes. So I feel like we've learned a lot over the years and we've adjusted our society to reflect that. Agreed. So in total, Marlene and her daughter went to four houses that night looking for Amanda It took them 30 minutes to do so because they were in a panic, moving fast. At another friend's house, they learned that Amanda had gone there after being ousted from the after-school program where she had been until around 4.30. So she was at the friend's house until 4.30. And this friend lived on 32nd Street. When Marlene had gotten to the friend's house, her parents were not home because... They were attending the open house that she was supposed to be at with Amanda. So she was really only able to talk to the girl. But now at least she has attracted Amanda to being at that house at 430. Right. So that's a that's a pretty good amount of time that she has like the whereabouts of, of her daughter. What I find interesting now is it's what well, was at this point it's after seven o'clock you would assume yeah it's it's around it's between 7 and seven thirty because at 7 30 marlene gets back to her house from looking for amanda so it's i think it's safe to say at this point that if she left that home at four thirty, then whatever happened to her had to have been when she was making her way home from this last friend's house to her current right. you know to her actual home right like you're saying maybe at four thirty she left her friend's house to start her journey back home right well, Shauna suggested that maybe Amanda was late and she was she just decided to go meet her mother at the open house. So she said, I'll go to the school and look for my sister and you go to two other houses. And she gave her mother two other houses to go to. 
So they decided like splitting up would be the best for them so they could cover more ground. So they agreed to do that. And then after the sister went to the school and she went to the two houses, they would meet back at at their house. So while she was walking around to other houses, she noticed people outside. She asked everyone that she saw if they had seen Amanda. And everyone said no, except for one boy who said he saw her riding her bike, but that was it. And once the two met back at their home, they found that they were both unsuccessful in finding Amanda. Yeah, so I'm going to say this. I don't know if everybody agrees, but I know that I would feel this way. My daughter's missing. I can't find her. I've looked everywhere for her. I can't, you know, I can't find her. And now there's like a like a dead lead because I can't. I can't I can't find her and the whereabouts of her after 4:30 are just missing, right? So, I'm walking or driving through the neighborhood. I'm going to look at every single house and every single person that I see as a, as a possible suspect as to where my daughter might be. Yeah. Like I'm going to be so distrusting to everybody I see because are you telling me the truth? If you're saying, "Oh, you saw her on on her bike." Okay, can I trust this person? Like I don't know. Right. I I would or be the very, people that said no. Yeah, I would be very guarded because she's nine years old. You know what I yeah. mean? So I'd be super guarded and I wouldn't want to trust anybody. I would just want to find her. No, I agree with you. And this is, you know, like Marlene was at that point because this is when she decided to call the police. Yeah, good call. An officer came to take a statement from Marlene. As any other mother would, she was upset with the lackadaisical approach that the officer was taking towards her missing daughter. Instead of treating this as a missing person's case, he assured Marlene that she had nothing to worry about and that Amanda most likely just ran away. And, you know, at first when the officer came to the house, he was like looking under beds and checking the closets. And Marlene was actually screaming at him like, she's not here. She's not here and I don't know where she is. She didn't run away. Right. And that's how they were treating it. Like they were not really concerned. Now, this, I'm going to take you on a, on a rabbit hole journey, okay? This is something I find interesting because San Diego actually had, even in 1991, a dark history of child abductions. So I don't want to make it sound like stranger abductions against children is something that takes place all the time. It's actually the opposite. Stranger abductions of children are pretty rare. It's usually someone the child knows. So the fact that there has been a concentration of stranger abductions in one location is concerning to say the least. Like the chances of these abductions happening within one area is scary. And you would think if there's a missing child, you would be searching for them right away because of the history of the area. I agree. It's not... Yeah, I agree with what you're saying. I I guess the counter would be the police need to do their due diligence to establish that the mother has nothing to do with this. But what she was upset about was they weren't even treating it as a missing persons case. Right. So I'm what I'm going to do now is I'm going to get into a list of all of the child abductions that had taken place in the area. Now, um, in the area of where, like, Amanda also went missing from. So these are child abductions from San Diego 
during the same time period. And I think you're going to follow my thought process of this being a little concerning and them not finding a little, there's not fire under their, their, their bottoms, their bottoms to, (laughs) to, to look for, you know, this child. Right. So in 1977, a six-year-old boy, Luis Ramirez, was reported missing. 48 hours later, his body was found at a nearby park. A convicted child molester later admitted to the crime. In 1978, two 16-year-old Miramesa boys, John Mayuski and Michael Baker, were kidnapped from a parking lot and shot. Now, this is a heartbreaking detail. Uh, One of the victim's fathers, a San Diego detective, would later arrest the man who was responsible for the shooting of his son. But during the arrest, he didn't know that one of this man's victims was his own son. Oh, wow. Okay. In 1986, 14-year-old Ricky Ann Blake was last seen in her Chula Vista home on April 10th. 24 hours later, she was found strangled to death along an exit ramp on Interstate 15. 20 years later, a man would be sentenced to death for her kidnapping, rape, and murder. But 20 years later. So her case, at the time of Amanda Gakey's disappearance, was unsolved. In 1988, 7-year-old Charity Angelique Karen was reported missing, and one year later, her skull was found by hikers in a canyon near Beaumont. Her killer was never found. In 1998, Seven-year-old Leticia Hernandez disappeared while playing in front of her house. Her skull was also found later in 1991 by a rancher near the Riverside County line. Her killer was never found. So that brings us to the year of Amanda's disappearance, 1991. On June 19th, nine-year-old Laura Arroyo of Chula Vista answered her front door and vanished. Was taken from her front door. Isn't that crazy? I mean, that is pretty crazy. That's a bold move. It is. I mean, that's escalation, right? If it's the same person. I mean, it kind of sounds like it is because they can't find who's doing it. I, I also just want to say, uh, just for the audience and, and Kay, just so you know, when you were going through the timeline, I th- you said 1999, and I think you meant 1989. Oh, Just so you, you know. Yeah, you, yeah, I did mean 1989. Yeah, and you said 1999. So I just want to just, you know. Thank you. Thank you for yeah. checking that. I just, so just so, yeah, and because that's when you said, okay, up to present date, 1991. Okay, yeah, because okay. Leticia Hernandez was taken in 1989, and then the... Laura Arroyo case that was 1991. Right. So I just thank wanted, you. Yeah. Not 1999. <laughs> right. No. 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 We're not flashing not forward that much. Well, Laura Arroyo was um, found the next day, three miles away at an industrial park. She had been beaten and stabbed, and her killer wouldn't be found until 2005. Um, he was sentenced to death for her kidnapping, molestation, and murder. But he wasn't found until 2005, so that means, again, in 1991, this was still an unsolved case. Just under a month later, in July of 1991, Rashida Wilson disappeared while playing outside of a hotel that she was living in with her mother in downtown San Diego. Despite a major search, her remains still have not been found to this day. So, this is why I get... That Amanda's mother was so upset that her daughter's 
missing case was not being taken more seriously at first. Not just because it's her child and she so desperately wants her back, but we have the case of Ricky Ann Blake, Charity Karen, Leticia Hernandez, Laura Arroyo, and Rashida Wilson. They'd all gone missing within the last six years and their abductors, rapists, and murderers had not been caught. I mean, that's kind of like scary because now you're like, this is what's happening to my daughter. Right. And these, these, this time is precious that we have in looking for her. 100%. I think that it's actually interesting that you, when you lay out the timeline the way you just did, it does kind of paint a, a more grave situation than what's, uh, what's initially thought, like thought of, you know? Right. Like if we have all these missing children being abducted at their doorstep, you know, you know, and, you know, and if. These people, like that one guy wasn't caught till 2005. Is it possible that he was, you know, there was other victims, you know, before they caught him? It's just like, I see what you're saying. It's really, it's a lot. Yeah, because. It's a lot of crimes. If my daughter went missing and in the last six years, five other girls had been kidnapped, raped, murdered. One of them hasn't even been found yet and their abductors haven't been found. Then. I'm nervous that that also now just happened to my daughter. Right, because now what is my daughter going to be part one uh, another uh, part of that statistic now? Yeah, where it's another one in the books. It's just kind of like you want the police to take more aggressive action right. than to just look in my own house underneath my bed. Yeah, like you know what I mean. Like to look in the house. Like obvi- duh, obviously the kid's not there. Right. And I wouldn't be calling the cops if I didn't check there myself. I see what you're saying. Yeah, like if he, if I had a police officer in my house, like looking in a closet, I'd be like lighting my house on fire. <laughs> like what? Like yeah. it's he, she's not here, buddy. So, and from her interviews, it sounded like Marlene wanted to do that. Like she was pretty furious at them not kickstarting this investigation a little bit faster. She adamantly was telling them Amanda did not want to run away from home. She was happy. And she was looking forward to her new school year. She was so excited for this open house. Um, She had just been promoted to this new school because her old school was only K to three. So she was just a happy girl. And she had a lot of friends and there was no reason for her to run away. Yeah. So around midnight that night, an officer came to speak with Marlene and Shauna about Amanda and get more information. She was told that they would start a large-scale search the following day, but they would not be able to say anything to the media until technically she had been missing for 48 hours. And that was what happened. The following morning, the neighborhood was canvassed, but the investigators found out nothing new. They had learned exactly what Marlene had the day before. Amanda had been at the after-school program, was asked to leave, came home, changed, went to a friend's house, but left at around 4.30, 5 p.m. And she had been seen by one neighbor riding her bike while he was doing his chore of watering the grass. And that was it. But there is one key player in this case that we have not yet discussed. And he is the most likely suspect when it comes to a child abduction. The other parent. I was thinking that. Especially because, you know, Marlene and her ex-husband, his name is Frederick, they were divorced. Okay. 
So Marlene explained to the detective now working the case that her and her husband had gotten a divorce a few years prior. She still loved him and she thought he was a great man, but he just wasn't when he was using drugs and he was an addict. They had separated because of his drug addiction and that was it. However, Marlene immediately explained that this could not have been her husband. They were not on bad terms, but it wasn't that. He was in prison for drug charges. Okay, so obviously it can't be him. <laughs> yeah, well, that's a pretty good alibi. Yeah. Well, of course, this is, you know, wonderful alibi, but detectives did not know all the dynamics between the divorced couple. You know, sometimes people aren't 100% truthful. Maybe Marlene thinks everything is great, but maybe Frederick's a little bit mad about the situation. So they wanted to explore the angle of maybe one of Amanda's father's associates carrying out the abduction. Was he connected like that? Well, he was arrested in a major drug bust that happened in the San Diego area. So, I mean, they were working um, really on two theories here. Maybe he was upset about the divorce, that the children were kind of like taken away from him, however you want to put it, and that he wanted, you know, the children to be with someone he trusted versus with his ex-wife. Or maybe there was a problem with one of his past associates, like maybe he owed someone money and they were choosing to kidnap his daughter for this. See, I find that one the most credible that maybe he owed somebody money or had a problem with it right. than just having one of his associates go to grab the kid. Because at the end of the day, right, even if you're not on the best terms with your ex-wife, you you know you want the best for your child. And that, and that would be to be with the mother, not to take the kid away. Well, I mean, some people don't think that way. Some people are just so angry at their ex-spouse that they don't want them to have custody of the child. Or they uh, yeah. feel like maybe their child's being turned against them in some way i guess but i mean the dude is in prison yeah so it's not like he can have like a one-on-one like you know be able to hang out with the kid or whatever he's in prison i don't know but you might be right you might be right well both of these scenarios had happened to detectives and other missing children's cases so that's why they wanted to kind of work both angles and just see what direction they were taking worst case scenario they've cleared the father and that's kind of what they were working to do you got to clear the ones closest to the child like you said earlier and then they can work outward right this is also you know we have to remember there was at this time a lot of gang activity within san diego in 1991 it was actually at its all-time high so they were thinking you know maybe this this is a kidnapping for money so investigators looked into all known associates of frederick gakey the most glaring of suspects practically jumped out at them his name was Justin Paiello. Paiello had been arrested with Frederick Gakey when the narcotic squad of the San Diego Police Department performed a massive drug bust 18 months prior. Paiello had just been released from prison three weeks before Amanda went missing. Where was he released? His mother's house in North Park. When investigators spoke with him, he denied even knowing that Frederick Gakey had a daughter. He claimed that he had absolutely nothing to do with the disappearance of Amanda. In the days that followed, the search continued for Amanda. Within 72 hours, all of North Park and the San Diego area 
had been searched, and officers were on the lookout for any child matching Amanda's description. While officers and volunteers searched, detectives questioned Amanda's classmates and teachers. One girl, who had also been playing with Amanda in the after-school program, told the detectives that when Amanda was asked to leave, she watched her bike away. But before she left the parking lot, she was approached by a Hispanic male. He was driving a red pickup truck. It looked like he was trying to give Amanda a ride home. She said that Amanda must have agreed to go with him because she got off her bike and he loaded it into the back of his pickup truck. And she left with him. This was terrifying, knowing that she may have been abducted, but it was the first lead that they had. So they were pretty happy that they had some direction to take their investigation in. So they contacted the girl's parents and asked them to bring her to the station so they could work with a sketch artist. But really, that was all a formality because they had a feeling they knew who that Hispanic male was. Somebody who they questioned that also owned a red pickup truck. Justin Paiello. Okay. You see how like one little thing could just bust open a case? Yeah. Like... This little girl's testimony is huge because now you have the make and you have, well, not the make, but you have the, you know, what it is, it's a pickup truck, and you have the color. It's actually a big deal. It is a big deal. So now they're going to question Justin Paiello. So the detectives decide to go talk to Paiello again, which, good idea. When confronted with this information, Justin Paiello broke down. He said that he did know Amanda. That they were special friends. Okay. If I'm gonna, if I'm a cop and I'm interviewing a dude and he says that they're special friends, right away I'm throwing up in my mouth. Um, <laughs> and I also want more clarification on special friends and what's going on here. Yeah, like those words are a red flag from a grown man. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah. So he said that he was very nice to Amanda when he saw her because he figured life was hard for the young girl because her father was an addict and he was in prison. So this means that, first of all, he was lying at first. Frederick Gakey did admit to Justin Paiello that he had a daughter. Not only did Paiello know that Amanda Gakey was Frederick's daughter, but he actively sought her out in the community to be special friends. It's a little strange. Also, we have to, we're not talking about something, and I want to bring it up right now. Think about how hard it would have been to just pull up to a gate by the school when some random girl is coming out, right? And saying, you know, hey, are you, you know, so-and-so? No, they were already friendly. Right. That's my point. But like you said, if they're actively searching, then he must have been doing it all for a while. If he was only out of jail for, what, three weeks? Right. So in those three weeks, he must have sought out Amanda Gakey several yes, times. Yes, for a while. He was scouting and he was kind of like, he, that's what I'm trying to get yeah. at. He's actively scouting. Right. But he denied. So he admitted to being her friend in quotes, which is disgusting and weird way to put it. Uh, I digress. But he denied seeing her on October 3rd. He okay. said, I am friendly with the girl. Didn't see her on October 3rd. Well, that contradicts what the other girl, girl pointed son. out. Right. 
Well, the investigators asked him to take a polygraph test, and he agreed. During the test, he admitted that he did have a red pickup truck, but said that he never used it because he did not have a license, and that he was friendly with Amanda, but he did not see her that day, and he passed. Okay, I mean, that's good, but I mean, there are ways to pass a lot of tech yes, tests. it is not admissible in court for that reason it's not 100 percent reliable but because there was really no evidence tying him to the abduction other than an eyewitness saying that they saw amanda get into a red truck with a hispanic man they can't just arrest him for being a hispanic male with a red truck which i agree with i totally agree with too i i but i would say i would hope i would hope that they, maybe that they would tail him and see if he does anything yeah they're gonna keep him on the radar but they do want to investigate different possibilities especially because at this point amanda geeky is still missing and they do want to find her right so i think it's the best direction for the investigation to go in at this point so after 11 days of exhaustive searches following leads and sleepless nights for amanda's family their worst nightmares were confirmed. The investigators working the case visited Marlene's house to give her a briefing, as they did each day. But on that morning, on October 14th, they had to tell her that remains had been found. A couple had called the police and let them know that while they were walking at the canyons at 32nd and Redwood, remember the last place she was seen at 4.30, was on 32nd Ave. Right. Within the canyons near their house, they found human remains. Units were sent out, and they confirmed to dispatch that, in fact, within the bamboo-covered canyon, there was a body. They did not know if it was Amanda at first, because the victim was lying on their back, wrapped in a white bed sheet with thin blue squares on it, and their head was covered by a plastic bag with the words save on printed on it. There was a nearby convenience store that went by the same name. But poking out of the sheet, there was a foot, the foot of a child with painted pink toenails. After the crime scene units came in and secured the scene, they took samples and pictures from and of everything in the surrounding area. They brought the body in for identification. Once the sheet and bag had been removed, it was clear that the body was in advanced stages of decomposition. And the girl was completely naked except for a stocking-like fabric that was wrapped around her neck. Marlene was sat down by investigators and the medical examiner. And she was told that the remains that had been found were Amanda. When Marlene had been sat down, um, she was told by investigators that, of course, the remains had been found, but they couldn't tell if it was Amanda until an autopsy was performed. Marlene later revealed that a few hours later, the medical examiner returned to her house and confirmed that the body that had been found was Amanda. And he went over all of her injuries and her cause of death. And it was the worst moment of her life. I mean, that's terrible. I mean, to hear that news, I'm sure, is extremely hard. And just to know that now this is another victim. Another murdered child within this area. So 
you know, now that brings six victims within six years unsolved. It's a little bizarre that she was last seen at 4.30 leaving the house. She was on 32nd Street. Yes. I do find that a little concerning because if that was the last place she was, that means that she was picked. She had to be picked up in that area. And then that's where, and then behind 32nd Street in the canyon, she was found. Yes. And you're saying they did a, a sweeping search. Correct. So what's coming to my mind right now is someone has to either live close or on 32nd Street and dispose of her body in the canyons behind those homes as a very quick and easy drop off. Like, you know what I mean? That's an interesting point. Now, I don't know how many people they spoke to, but, you know, it would make sense that someone on that block somewhere near there did this. Or knows something. Or knows of someone who has been doing this. Right. Oh, and this isn't the only body that's been found up in the, uh, not the same, not the same. It's not the same canyon. Not the same canyon, but a canyon, you know, period. So the um, disposal of the body sites are similar. Yes. Okay. Well, now I'm going to get into the medical examiner's report. And this can be a little rough to hear. So if it is something that you're not interested in hearing, you could fast forward about a minute and then I'll, I'll be done. But um, this is a rough one to get through. So the medical examiner determined that Amanda had been dead for seven to 10 days. Now, remember, she had been missing for longer than that. And that would later explain why her body had not been found in the initial search of the canyon because it simply had not been placed there yet. The official cause of death was homicidal violence from asphyxiation. There were marks from a stocking-like material over her chin and neck. So it was clear that, you know, that had been used to, to strangle the girl. There were signs of vaginal and anal sexual trauma. A semen sample was collected from the bedsheet that she had been wrapped in. I know all of that was hard to hear about a nine-year-old girl, but there was another very troubling piece of the puzzle that was revealed through the toxicology reports run on Amanda's blood. She had a blood alcohol level of 0.11. That level of intoxication in a nine-year-old child would have brought them to a state of near unconsciousness. And there was also the presence of cocaine in her system. So whoever had Amanda and had held her for several days was consistently keeping her drunk and high. Which is even worse. I guess it was, I mean, obviously we know to keep her compliant. So all of the evidence surrounding her body was also searched. There had been pieces of trash and some small piles of garbage that were near her. These things looked to also have only been there for a short amount of time. So they thought that maybe the person who left Amanda at the scene had also left the garbage there too. Within the piles, the investigators found a receipt. From the receipt, there was a name. Kim. The investigators looked into all known associates of the Gaykey family and could find no one named Kim. Then they thought the Savon bag that was found over Amanda's head could be another clue. So they checked 
into the convenience store of Savon and they asked just if were there any people that were working there named Kim or were there any customers that they knew of named Kim and again they had no luck in finding whoever this Kim person was and again they didn't even know if this was a lead that was going to help them but they were they were trying everything at this point so they also had a semen sample from the sheet that Amanda's body was wrapped in and this luckily revealed the killer's blood type so in 1991 that was extremely helpful because now they could eliminate people based on their blood types that's pretty good um later on they would go back and ask Justin Paiello for a blood sample he provides it and his blood type does not match that of the semen sample okay but still weird that still weird he did all that the save on bag was another piece of evidence the bed sheet itself and the receipt with the name kim on it so that's what they had to work with and at least they had that all of the evidence crime scene report and medical examiner's reports were all sealed they did not want the public to know what had taken place they did tell marlene what had happened but they asked her not to share any details They did this all for two reasons. They didn't want to create panic and they knew that, you know, once they did have a suspect, they would be able to verify whether or not that suspect was real if they could give the details that had not been revealed. And without knowing that they were helping, the media actually helped them with this idea because, um, I guess reporters had been tipped off by someone, most likely within the San Diego Police Department, that a body had been found in the canyon at 32nd and Redwood. So people scrambled there to start taking pictures and they reported that the body was found in a blanket. So that was actually what was in um, all the newspapers in San Diego, that Amanda's body was found in a blanket. So that helped them. So they know in the future, if anyone says, oh, I put her body in a blanket, they knew they were only getting that information from the newspapers. Right. It would have to be another kind of, you know, piece of evidence that would stand out. Right. So the police set up a tip line for the case and they received hundreds of calls almost instantly. But one lead was very interesting. A minister had called. He said that two of his parishioners might be responsible for Amanda's death. He said they were a young couple who often spoke about the devil and the devil giving them directions to do things. This sounded like many of the other tips investigators had received. But when the minister gave the name of the couple, the Guilfords, investigators were intrigued. That was the couple that had found Amanda's body. Wait, really? Yes. And to you know go off of what you were saying before they only lived 20 yards away from where amanda's body had been found i'm good (laughs) (laughs) no not really but i try (laughs) and the spot that her body was found in was actually visible from one of their windows oh that's insane they asked the minister more about this and he told them that the husband um, had told him once that he needed assistance in getting away from Satan and that when he went to kind of counsel him on this, he would always mention Satan and Satan's needs for child sacrifice. 
That's so weird. Yes. Well, I know this may sound strange and kind of like, oh, my God, that's weird. Or that's something that's not plausible. But we also have to remember timeline. And we can't forget that we are in the midst of America's satanic panic. So to just give you a time frame, the daycare sexual abuse hysteria that surrounded the McMartin preschool trials had only ended one year before the disappearance of Amanda Gakey. And the McMartin preschool case only happened two hours north of San Diego in uh, Los Angeles County, uh, Manhattan Beach, I think it was. And it would be only two years later that the whole Memphis 3 case would take place. So we are in the midst of this fear of the existence of satanic cults in the United States existing on a large scale. Like people truly believed this because it was being projected so within the media. Like they, it was fear mongering, but it was taking place. So the fact that this is now being entered in as a scenario was plausible to investigators and they thought, holy shit, is this what's been responsible for all these missing children's cases? I, it's actually funny that you did this because recently I was, I was reading an article that was talking about that there was a cult in the late 80s, 87 and 88, that had not, that, I don't want to say they had ties, but they thought it there was a connection. They, I think they called it like the Finders Cult or something, where it was like this, this group of people that would actually like take kids away and then they, you know, obviously they would abduct them, but. And then they would try to like sell them to like cults that would use them to sacrifice. This is all like like but is this true? Well, all I'm gonna say is I wouldn't even say anything about it on the podcast if I didn't have some sort of documentation. What is true is that the CIA was involved in trying to figure it out with the FBI, and there is a documented case from 1987 that they did find a couple of children in a van with people who were trying to smuggle these children. Okay. But they didn't know where they were being taken to. But it had to do with exactly what you're talking about. Right. And I think that that whole idea in the, the late 80s, the early 90s was um, there might be little cases here and there where things might have um, had little truths within them. But it blew up into this hysteria right. that was taking place throughout the whole country. And just the... Uh, level of satanic worship that the country thought was taking place was really truly not occurring but again here they were they did fall victim to thinking for for a time that okay maybe a satanic cult is involved in this and um the connection is going to be the guilfords and what they're talking about but police didn't want to initially entertain the ideas of them being responsible for the other children. They only wanted to focus on the Guilfords in the case of Amanda Gakey because, you know, honestly, they, the McMartin preschool case was a hot mess and it's one of the most expensive series of trials that happened in this country. So I think that they were avoiding that mess and they just kind of wanted to casually look into the Guilfords before they went down that direction because it's a dangerous spiral that they could have went down. Not to mention you're 20 yards from where the body was um, left. You know what I mean? You got to investigate. Right. If you can see her from your window, um, you know I'm knocking on the door and asking questions. Oh, 100%. You know? 
Okay, so the detectives go and interview the couple again under the guise of just needing more information about the day they discovered Amanda's body. The Guilfords had looked like your average church-going couple. But upon further investigation, the detectives found out that there was a history of drug use and child abuse. When they went to their house to ask them about finding Amanda's body, Percy Guilford, just as the minister said he would, started talking about Satan. He said that he believed Amanda could have been used in a human sacrifice. It was October, the month when Satan would make his sacrifices of young children. So when he said this, um, the detectives were quite alarmed, as you can imagine, and they thought that, okay, potentially maybe this man could have been the one to harm Amanda, and maybe what he was trying to do was blame Satan for the crime, or maybe he had done it as a sacrifice himself to Satan, who he seems to be obsessed with, because I, I haven't said Satan so many times in the past 30 minutes than I think I have in my whole life. So, <laughs> um, As they kept the conversation going, they learned a very interesting fact. Percy Guilford told the investigators that he worked at Savon Convenience Store down the street. That's insane. And okay. Amanda, her head was covered by a Savon bag. So I don't think they could have dreamed of a better suspect at this point. <laughs> But again, we said that about Justin Paella. True. But here we have more go on. That's for sure. Yes. I mean, I you have the proximity of where she was last seen, where her body was ultimately found. It's just, it's it looks too good. Right. And don't forget, the couple, they're the ones that found the body. So we do have cases where the killers insert themselves into the investigation and that's what these two have done. Right. So the couple was asked to take a polygraph test and submit blood and saliva samples. Percy Guilford and his wife passed the polygraph tests. His blood type did not match the semen sample that was found on the sheet. It wasn't him. Okay. That's bizarre. Two promising suspects cleared like what are the chances let me just throw a wrench in here real quick okay just because they are not found uh, found guilty to uh, you know of murder could they have still taken her I don't know. right i mean it's a, a to me it's not off the table could they have taken her for somebody else and this is what happened they were left and then they were left to uh you know take care of her body and put it you know I do I do think that in the case of the Guilfords, there's so many very strange coincidences. I guess so. They were a, and they were a very strange couple. And that's what the detectives really repeatedly said within their case files. Very strange couple. And they were very on edge, on guard around them. OK. But really now they're back at square one. And the case of Amanda Gakey, like other Unfortunate children in the San Diego area had grown cold. For years, there was no new leads until 1996. So the lead that came in in 1996 was from one of Amanda's classmates who was actually staying in a psychiatric hospital for children. Her father, who was a registered sex offender, had been molesting her for years. 
the abuse that she suffered at the hands of the man who was supposed to go to the ends of the earth to protect her had damaged the young girl. She had what doctors called a psychotic break. It was then that she told others what her father had been doing to her. There was plenty of evidence that corroborated the story that the girl told her mother and later the police. And because of this, her father was sent back to prison. While she was in the hospital, she told one of the nurses that she had been keeping another secret for her father. He was a murderer. She had witnessed him kill Amanda Gakey. Whoa. Okay. You. Oh my God, that's so crazy. I, and these poor children, I feel so bad. I know, this is just, there's... The heartbreak is all over the place in this case. I mean, not only does this this girl in particular have to deal and endure what happened to her, right? But to know this this dark secret that her father killed somebody. Yeah, I mean, in if front this, of her, right? If this turns out to be real, I mean, oh my god, that's insane. The nurse told the doctors at the hospital and called the police to let them know about the confession. At this point, new detectives had been assigned to the case, and they went to the hospital to interview the girl. Now, at this point, remember, so it's 1996, so it's five years later, so she's 14 years old. Okay. When the detectives interviewed the girl, she confessed to them that she had always felt guilty about not telling the truth about what happened to Amanda. The girls had been in the same fourth grade class, after all. On October 3rd, Amanda had been riding her bike around town and ran into her. The two girls made their way into the canyon to play, but she did not know that her father had been waiting there for them. Just as they passed some trees, she said her father had grabbed Amanda, raped her, stabbed her, and shot her. He turned to her and told her, that he would kill her if she ever told what happened. Wow. Well, the detective spoke with their forensic psychologist and the girl's doctor about the confession because something was off. Amanda had been asphyxiated, not stabbed or shot. Right. I was thinking that. (laughs) The psychologist and doctor confirmed that maybe it was not as off as they thought it was. The girl had suffered great trauma, as it is. But if she also witnessed this happen to her classmate in front of her, her trauma was even worse than they thought. And it could greatly affect her memory. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's true. I mean, plus she was young. Yeah, they said there was a very strong possibility that she saw the violence that was done onto Amanda Gakey. So she could have... like in her mind built up what happened. And then that led to the stabbing and the shooting. Um, To me, there's still additional information off meaning like Amanda's body was found and it maybe the cause of death was ruled incorrectly by the medical examiner. But remember they swept the Canyon and she had not been there initially. And then she was again. Okay. So when the detectives went to talk to the man who was being accused of killing Amanda Gakey, they'd went to his house. Now he had just been released from his prison sentence that he had served for the molestation of his daughter. Wow. So he was out now and he was on parole. He denied having anything to do with the murder of Amanda Gakey. 
He provided blood and hair samples, and he also took a polygraph test. Now, this lead seemed to be a little bit more promising because the man failed the polygraph test. Interesting. Okay. But his blood type was not the same as the semen sample. Okay. That's odd. So this suspect was cleared. Ah, damn. Okay. He had just been released from prison and maybe his daughter. I mean, there's so many different things that could have happened as to the reasons why she made this confession. Maybe she wanted her father back in jail. And that would have placed him in jail. And she knew that he was capable of the violence and of murder because I'm sure he had told her that he would murder her if she ever told. And she did tell. So I think now that her father had been out of prison, she was scared that he was going to kill her. Or it could also maybe maybe he it's possible this person could have done killed somebody else. But we there's just no evidence of it. Maybe she did witness somebody die. Maybe, and she maybe she's getting something. it confused. But maybe she really did witness her father kill a classmate or or some or a girl or whatever. Right. You know what I mean? So maybe that's why he, he didn't pass the lie detector test, but it wasn't the right girl. That's an interesting know. thought. Yeah. And a scary one. Oh, yeah. So, you know, that's just it's pretty crazy. This is now the third suspect that seems like, oh, my God, this is the one. Right. Yeah three that have been cleared that you thought could have been really viable suspects. And I think it's good that detectives are going to the lengths that they're going each time a suspect comes up. But we have to also remember that each time this happens, it takes a really strong emotional toll on Amanda's parents and sister. It does because they're not getting the answers that they, they want. But just when it seemed like the family and investigators were losing hope, Another lead came in, and this was the one. Yes. In May of 1996, only a few months after um, the first, I mean, the third suspect had been looked into, an Asian gang member who was serving time in a San Diego jail requested to have a meeting with the detectives that were handling the Amanda Gakey case. He told them that a friend had said he strangled a young girl and had gotten rid of her body in a canyon. He told him that he had wrapped the girl in a sheet and put a bag over her head. He had thrown her into the canyon after putting her in a garbage can. His friend's name was David Webb Kim. The last name Kim. They were looking for a first name. They were looking for a first name. Oh, man. Okay. And just like that, they knew that this was more than a lead. He knew that it was a sheet and not a blanket that her body was wrapped in, as the newspapers had reported those five years ago. And now it made sense that her body was transported in a garbage can because of all the garbage and receipt. Now the name Kim made sense, and so did the garbage. They also knew from the case file that five years ago, when the original detectives canvassed the neighborhood, they had spoken to David Webb Kim. He was the neighbor that was watering his grass and told them and Marlene that he had seen Amanda riding her bike around the neighborhood. Stop it. Stop it right now. Listen to me. I called it. I know. I I knew it. 
I can't even believe that I knew it. I'm shocked myself that I <laughs> pinned it, that I knew it, and we're already over an hour in. I knew it from the 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 moment that you said that. The, uh, that's why I said the. That's why I made the comment about the neighbors like, about not trust trusting them. your neighbors. I knew it. I knew it was him. I knew it was him. Wow, you're like you could be a detective right now. I swear on everything <laughs> that I knew from that moment. We all believe you, and you were right. You were right. Wow. Oh my God, my mind is blown right now. Okay. I was like, I was thinking in my head when you were saying it. I'm like, oh my God, please don't keep bringing up that you think it's him. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I don't mean to like try to pin medals no, on myself no, or anything, you, but that was medals good. Deserved. Medals deserved. Oh my deserved. God, that's crazy. But now, you know what? Nobody believed it could have been him because at the time he was 16 years old. Yep. Okay. You know what was going through my mind? Tell us. When, because when, you said he was he was a kid himself, right? Yeah. I was thinking about that one case of the kid that abducted that younger kid, and they found the kid underneath his mattress or some crap. Remember that case? Yes. We never covered it, but it, it, it's, it's yes, a case. Yes, yes. That's what I was thinking in my head, and it, and it actually made me very interesting. That's how I put it together. Okay. And I also thought the sheet because I guarantee you that she was alive. I'm thinking now she was probably alive in the house. And do, you want trying... to, do you want to take this over? Do you want to just do the whole thing? Am I right? I don't know. Oh, my God. Okay, you go. <laughs> I was, I've never been so excited on a case I before. I know. All right. you Detective John. All right. Okay, so when Webb Kim was brought in for questioning, the 22-year-old, right, because now five years has passed, said that he was aware of the Mandigeki case, but that he had nothing to do with it. So since he wasn't talking to detectives, they decided to let him sweat it out in the interrogation room. They had officers at the time completing a search warrant of his house. So they hoped that the detectives and officers that were at his house would be able to find something that they could confront him with so they could kind of get a confession out of him because that was the best case scenario for them and for the family to not have to drag this out through a long trial and they did they were able to find a fitted sheet and pillowcase that had the same pattern as the sheet amanda was found in the loose fitting sheet was missing from the collection found at the kim household and it was the loose fitting sheet that she was wrapped in right The detectives went back into the room with Webb Kim and they explained to him that they had physical evidence now that tied him to the body and soon they would find out that his blood sample would be found as a match for the semen sample they found on the sheet. He knew that he was cornered so he asked if he could have a plea deal. They let him know that first they would have to hear his story and he agreed to tell them. But I must warn you that this story is every bit as heartbreaking as you would imagine it is. He had seen Amanda riding her bike at around 5 p.m. while he was watering his lawn. So this is consistent with what we had learned. It seems as if she was kicked out of the program, went to play with her other friend around 4.30. Um, they, the timeline was around 4.30, 5 p.m., So I think she was on her way home from her friend's house to get from her friend's house back to her apartment. She would pass if she was taking the most direct route, David Webkin's house. Okay. Okay. So as she rode her bike towards his house, he squirted her with the hose. 
got her wet. He told her that he was sorry, but she was upset. She didn't want to go home with her clothes wet because she was supposed to be wearing those clothes to the open house. They were also new clothes that her mom had just bought in her two weeks ago. Webb Kim said that he offered to put her clothes in the dryer for her so she would be able to go home with dry clothes and not get in trouble. Amanda agreed and went back into his house with him. She was a nine-year-old girl. Yeah, it's really sad. He gave her a towel and she went into his bathroom. She came out wrapped only in the towel and handed him all of her clothes. He went to go put her clothes in the dryer and invited her into his bedroom while they waited for her clothes to dry. He gave her wine to drink and then eventually drugs. He waited until she was in a semi-conscious state. He then gagged her and tied her up, sexually assaulted her, and hid her underneath his bed. You gotta be kidding me. It's the same as the case you said. It's the same thing. Oh my god. Okay. He did this because his mother would be coming home. So for two days, Webb Kim kept Amanda in a semi-conscious state with alcohol and drugs. While he was at school, sleeping, or his mother was home, he would keep her tied up under his bed. Um, During the time, he was under the influence of methamphetamines as well. He sexually assaulted her several times throughout the two days that he kept her there. Um, That meant that when he was outside talking to Amanda's mother, she was under his bed. And then when the police came and talked to him the next morning... She was still there. Right. And that's really sad. He admitted to having a pair of stockings tied around her neck. And when he would sexually assault her, he would twist the stockings tighter, which eventually would become her cause of death. She stopped breathing. And that was when he um, disposed of her body by wrapping her in a sheet, covering her head and taking her out to the canyon by placing her in a trash can. David Webb Kim's blood sample was a match for the blood type detected on the semen sample found on the sheet. He pled guilty to the charges of rape, torture, kidnapping, and murder. But because he was a minor when the crimes were committed, he was spared the possibility of the death penalty. So the prosecutors did not want to give him anything. There was no plea deal for him. Um, They said the only agreement that they would reach with him was that that he wouldn't be facing the death penalty. He really didn't know that he, um, if the judge chose to not, you know, try him as an adult, he wasn't facing the death penalty anyway, because at the commission, during the time of the commission of the crime, he was only 16 years old. But it is crazy that at 16 years old, he committed one of the most monstrous crimes that we've ever covered on this podcast. At 16. I mean, this kid is a sociopath what would he have become if he wasn't caught if he wasn't caught it's true and he almost got away with it if you think about it yeah if his friend never told on him to get a lesser sentence he might have yeah 100 percent. he was sentenced to life in prison and gave up his right to appeal now since his conviction uh 
many people thought that his parents should also be charged with a crime too because how were they not aware this was taking place within their home and he was a minor at the time uh but i you know i do have to say that this is one of the many cases that were cited when there was kind of this overhaul within san diego to take care of the alarming high crime rates that were taking place and all of the missing children and all of the gang violence because David Webb Kim was in the direction to um, like he was headed in the direction of joining a gang and something had to change within the city of San Diego or it was going to be lost forever because if you do look at the crime statistics and in our sources we do have like the link to the statistics of San Diego at the time it is insane the jump that took place between the mid 1980s and early 1990s in San Diego. Yeah. That's actually really interesting. Yeah. And you know, it's just sad because Amanda Geeky would be 39 years old today and probably have children of her own. And it's just so sad that she didn't get to live her life and that he did that to her. It's just so sick. It is. I mean, he, he robbed that family of any of any joy, you know. Yeah. You know, now that family is forever just kind of overshadowed and emptied by what happened. It's just like it's yeah. it's horrible. And it's one of those horrific things whereas like as a parent, you want to know what happened to your child, but then if you find out and it was something like this, it's like that has to haunt your dreams. It does, especially since you're in you you're pr- you're practically in arm's reach of the person who did it. Yeah. And at the the sentencing hearing um there was a time during the the hearing where frederick gakey like wanted to it like he wanted to go after him and the police officers in the, within the courtroom were holding him back and they were like it's not worth it because you're going to go to prison again like you're going to go to jail again because you have a criminal record and if you attack someone in a courtroom it's not going to be good no matter what he did so they were like trying to tell him he's not worth it he's not worth it yeah I mean, some people would say it is. Yeah, but, some people would say but, it is. But, you, know, you know, especially, you know, what happened. But Well, yeah, and he has his other daughter that he needs to be there he for, needs to be too, there for, because yeah. I can imagine the effects this also had on, on Shauna. Yeah, everyone involved. Because Shauna had to have known David Webb Kim in some capacity because she was 14 and he was 16, so... You know what? That's a good point. They I had didn't to even... have known each other. Yeah, that's a good point. I really didn't even think about that at all. Oh my god, what a case! You called it though in the first like fifteen minutes. I will give that to you. <laughs> I uh, yeah. I mean, wow. It's I couldn't believe it. I it just everything connected. You know, yeah. as, as far as because. I'm thinking the timeline, you know, it's like this little girl on her bicycle. It's a tight timeline. It, it's a tight timeline. And just, it didn't, something just didn't add up there. Yeah. And you know what? You're, you were so right too. When you said it's such a different world nowadays because, and this is like a really sad story, but recently within the town that we live in, there was a girl who would always ride her scooter. They were saying this was like reported on like our ring. Uh, they were talking about it on our, the ring app, you know, cause we have a ring doorbell and that um, a girl that was always riding her scooter. Remember she was taken down like in between two houses. Like somebody saw her always riding around and 
was sexually assaulting her between two houses and neighbors saw it on their ring and ran out. Right. And stopped it yeah. and called the police. If this was, if they had ring doorbells back then, they would have seen this all happen. Think about it. If one person, the house across the street, it's kind of like looking at the other house, yeah. right? It would have caught the whole thing at least. Well, when I mean the whole thing, I mean her going, you know, her wedding, you know, him wedding her with the hose and both of them going inside the home. It would have been if captured. That right there would have been enough to investigate the dude. A hundred percent. And they would have searched the house. And remember, she was kept alive for 48 hours. Probably would have found her. And also, guys, I don't know if you've ever had this happen, but we've had, I've had a cop come to my house for something different, obviously for something different. It was about a, a, a possible car break in a couple of streets or a couple of, you know, or the other town. Or, I'm not sure. No, it was two blocks away. There okay. Was car break in. Well, they asked me if I had my ring doorbell footage for me to give to him. To investigate. We thought we were going to aid an investigation. Yeah, we thought that would be, you know, it was going to be really cool. But what I, you know, so where I'm going we with that nothing. is, imagine if that, if a cop came and said, have you seen this girl? Well, I, I haven't, but I have my door, my ring doorbell footage. Would you like me to show it's you? It's like you're always looking out your window. It, it, it is. So, I mean, like, it would be easy to, like, come to a faster, like, result, you know? That's really you true. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, it's, it's just so sad. And it I'm, is. It really it's is. terrible. Well, guys, we can't wait to hear what you think about this case. I think it was definitely a wild ride. I feel like I need a drink now. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I feel like I always need one. So I'm gonna, yeah. it's my excuse. Uh, but before we go, we do want to thank our new Patreon supporters. Jason Shipcott, uh, Kelly Buffone up to her pledge. Thank you. And Melissa Rabakay. Thank you so much for joining our Patreon family. And we hope you're enjoying all of your new Patreon episodes to listen to. And again, guys, if you want to join Patreon, you can go to patreon.com slash truecrimecouple. And if you're interested in any merch, that is also uh, listed in our show notes. So we hope you have a great two weeks and we will see you then. Bye, guys. Bye, guys.